Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. All right, well, I am uh, really excited to be here, and thank you, Zach. Uh, I'm honored that it's the first Sunday of the year, so buckle up. So I want to, uh, I want to give a, just a little introduction. First, I want my wife to stand up. Okay. We have four children. Uh, their ages are two, five, six, and eight. So we don't often get to travel together without our children. So we're really excited to be here. Um, well, I was going to say let the reader understand, but wow, you guys get it. So I'm originally from Rhode Island. These are my people, okay? Um, but I want to I just, as Zach said, uh, Sarah and I, are, we're missionaries in the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Been there for 15, 16 years. Um, and we, our mission is to minister to the Lord in worship and intercession and from that place, we make disciples. And, you know, some people hear that and they go, oh, wow, you guys must be really good at prayer. You must be like experts if that's your job. And I just want to say, we're not. <laughs> we're satisfied customers. Like, the thing that keeps us coming back to the place of prayer and worship is the worth and the beauty of Jesus. And, and it is truly transform my life. I mean, it's in the place of prayer that we discover how weak we are and how strong God is. And, you know, one of the th reasons I've wanted to connect with this church is because I've heard all the way back from Kansas City, I've heard about this Tuesday night prayer meeting. And I'm, I'm from here. And I know that it's a big deal for there to be a prayer meeting that is packed on a Tuesday night. Um, and so I want to give you just a testimony, because I know that you guys are praying for people in this city. In 20 years ago, it was 2003, I was uh, not a believer. I was in a fraternity at the University of Rhode Island. If anyone has ever seen the movie, um, there's a scene with John Belushi and there's this guy on the stairs with a guitar, and he's playing. He's like, I dreamed I was a flower. John Belushi comes. He takes the guitar, and he smashes it. I was like the flower-singing hippie guy, <laughs> just to be clear. But, um, you know, I was really in a dark place. I, I'd grown up Catholic, but didn't practice that. Um, really wanted nothing to do with the church. And I had a friend who went to a conference in Kansas City. He came back so rocked for Jesus that he just told me, dude, Jesus is the only way. And I was like, bro, <laughs> chill. And I think I won the argument. You know, I pulled out all my liberal arts education on him. And, but he just said, you know what? I believe this. That, that was January of 2003. He called me the day before Easter Sunday, and he said, hey, do you want to come to church? It's, it's Easter, and my Catholic upbringing, I think some of you might resonate with this, I was like, even though I am opposed to everything that you 
and these born-agains stand for? I do Easter. And so it was actually 4.20, let the reader understand. Well, you guys really understood that. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. And uh, I show up at this church, and it's a smaller church in Cranston, Rhode Island. And uh, I remember my friends, when they brought me, they were thinking, oh, no, it's one of those Sundays. You know, it was like a very charismatic church. You never knew what was going to happen. I have a feeling you guys resonate with that. And so here I walk in just real raw, and the pastor got up at the end of the service, and he started talking about the reality of the resurrection. And I remember hearing that, and I, I, I knew about Jesus, but I thought he was just another man. I never heard anybody talk about him like he was alive. And I, I made a decision. I gave my life to the Lord. And here, here's the part where I want to encourage you. Two blocks from my fraternity house, I discovered that something was going on before I gave my life to Jesus. There was a group of young people who were gathered every Sunday night, and they happened to be meeting at the time two blocks from my frat house, and they were praying for God to move. And so I walked from the frat house to the prayer meeting, and my life was forever changed. And by the grace of God, I've never looked back. But the point is, Somebody was praying for guys like me. And I, and I, I want to give you a, you know, a picture that the people you're praying for on Tuesday nights, Monday nights, whenever you're praying, like God answers those prayers. So Lord, even today, we ask, do it again. God, like you encountered me, Stoner Colin, Lord, and made me an intercessor, Lord. Do it again. In Jesus' name. All right, open up your Bible to James chapter 1, if you have it. I'm not going to call this a word for the year, okay, because I don't want to mess with your theology. Because I'm going to talk about growing through trials. So let's just, uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, here we are. God, I ask that you would meet us today in your word. Strengthen us, God. Jesus, I ask for grace to hear and grace to speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. James says in verse, chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Okay, so, you know, we hear this verse sometimes. And if you've ever been in a trial and someone comes along and they smile at you and they go, count it all joy, you kind of want to punch them. So... Fortunately, there's a space here, so you can't, you can't get to me. Um, but I want to kind of dive into that this morning. First of all, James doesn't say, count it all joy, if by the rare chance you're one of those poor, unfortunate souls 
that breaks the algorithm of victorious Christianity and happens to just, oh my gosh, slip into a trial. Because it's probably never going to happen. No, he says, when. When you meet trials of various kinds. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but trials in the Christian life are to be expected. Paul in Acts 14 says it's through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. Jesus said in this life, this is a, this is a promise verse, put on your mirror in the morning. In this life, you will have tribulation. Hallelujah. Okay, there's a second part to that, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay. Hey, but trials are to be expected. Now, I'm, I, I, meeting Zach, I kind of feel like kindred spirit, like he's like a brother. I, so I'm going to treat you like I'm family. Is that okay? Um, sometimes, you know, when I was a new Christian, I had this idea. I don't know where I got it from, but like if I really followed Jesus closely, I would somehow avoid trials Avoid pain. Avoid confusion. Like, I'd be like Tom Brady in the pocket, you know, just with a strong offensive line of angels. Notice I didn't say Mac Jones. (laughs) Truest thing you said all day, kid. Oh, that joke does not work in Kansas City. Okay, all right. Wait, stay on focus. Here we go. But the point is, like, we kind of get this idea as Christians, if we just do it right, we can just avoid it. You know, like the psalm says, Yea, though I come to the entrance of the valley of the shadow of death, but I go completely around it, because God is so good, and I'm such a good follower. No, that's actually not what it says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I mean, if this theology plays out, we would expect that somebody who lived without sin would never suffer. Yet Jesus, the only man who ever was without sin, was crucified. And I think I remember him saying something along the lines of, pick up your cross and follow me. So, trials are to be expected. But it's of primary importance in a time of trial that we are able to evaluate the trial from God's perspective. This is how we count it all joy. It's not like just this speak it and it's true thing. I mean, there's power in our, in our speech. I'm not going after that. I'm just saying it's not like, oh, if I just say count it all joy, whew, I made it. No, it's actually about knowing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why can you count it all joy? For you know. So understanding God's perspective helps us be thankful and rejoice in the midst of trials, seeing them as opportunities to produce steadfastness. Without God's perspective, we are naturally prone to accept a dark narrative of our trial. 
Okay, so let's break it down a little bit. Trials are to be expected. And James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Not that we necessarily get a choice like, hmm, I'll take a little bit of doubt and unbelief, please. Can I have a splash of confusion in there? Oh, that'd be great. No. But it is helpful to recognize that there are different kinds of trials. Um, being able to recognize when you're in a trial is helpful so you can be intentional to respond well. You got to know like, oh, I'm in a trial. I, I need to lean in in a different way. So let's just briefly go over some of these. There's trials related to our weakness or our sin. This one can be very challenging because we kind of feel like we could have avoided it if we weren't so weak. We could have avoided it if we didn't make that mistake. And we're going to talk more about this example later today in the message. But Peter, in his trial of faith, is a great example of this. When he denied Jesus, he was part of his own trial. This trial both revealed Peter's weakness and ultimately his willing spirit. He was sincere, but he was immature and weak. This, uh, for Peter, his weakness was a revelation to him, and the trial helped him see that. Okay, so there's trials related to our, our own weakness, and I think in times in my life, those are the ones where they can be so difficult because I'm just, I feel so bad for myself that I did this to myself. <laughs> I don't have anybody else to be angry at except myself. Okay, now then there are trials unrelated to our own weakness or sin. A prominent Old Testament example of this, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, let's be honest, sometimes comes in our reading plan and we're like, I'm not reading Job. <laughs> I get it, God. I'm not going to, I don't want to say I'm in Job. Okay. Um, but Mary, Martha, Lazarus in the New Testament are another example. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he rushed right to Lazarus and he was like, I can't let you suffer, bro. I love you so much. Boom, you're healed. Ha, huh? phew, glad that's over. No, that's not what it says. He stayed two more days in the place where he was, and Lazarus died. Okay? Um, someone said, uh, Lord, him who, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Uh-oh. <laughs> so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Like, wait, you love me, Lord? Okay, so they were going through a trial unrelated to their own weakness or sin. Okay, then there's uh, a third kind, and I'm not trying to cover every single one, but the broad strokes here, trials that are related to 
the weaknesses or sins of others. Now, I'm sure nobody in this room has had any experience with that. But just in case you ever do, I want you to have that as a grid, okay? There are many examples of this throughout Scripture. Joseph in the book of Genesis. King David. David got to experience pretty much every one of these trials. <laughs> um, the prophets, the apostles, and ultimately, Jesus. Jesus was absolutely sinless. Yet he suffered both at the hands of sinful men and for the sins of men. I mean, Jesus, you know, uh, talked about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That would be an example of a trial related to someone else's sin. They're persecuting you for righteousness. And he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Blessed are you when they revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Okay, and then lastly are trials related to a perceived delay in the timing of God's promises. Sometimes the trials that we are experiencing are made more intense because of a perceived delay in God's timing. Okay? Joseph. He was tested by the word that he received in his dreams as a boy. You know, Joseph, he had the dream, you know, like, all you guys are going to bow down to me. Yeah, you guys got that. Yeah, that joke doesn't work in Kansas City. <laughs> um, and he was tested by it in a great delay, okay, until it came to pass. David, likewise, he's anointed king by the Samuel prophet. But then he didn't become king over all of Israel for another 20 plus years. It says about Joseph in Psalm 105, it says, um, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. I mean, now that's a trial most of us don't like. I like the quick, let's get it over and done with. Okay, we're in a trial, boom, let's get through this as fast as we can. What do I have to do? Where are the exits? Uh, okay, I have to go through it. Can we run through it? And for guys like Joseph, guys like David, they're years. I mean, part of Joseph's trial involved being sold as a slave and then being sent to prison until the word came to pass. Okay, so trials can have a mix of sources, intensity, and duration. But regardless of the source or our interpretation of the source, because sometimes part of the trial is you just don't know. You're like, God, is this me? Is this the devil? Is this this guy? Is this that guy? I don't know. But regardless of all that, it's critical, like James said, that we know. Everybody say, no. That we know that they are purposeful from God's perspective. And they're meant to produce steadfastness or confidence in us. I mean, here's the thing. Regardless of the source, if you put yourself in a trial, God can use it. If 
Satan put you in a trial. God can use it. He doesn't get to put anybody in a trial unless God signs off on it, okay? If it's your friend that puts you in a trial, whoever, God can use it to produce steadfastness. But we need to resist the natural tendency to succumb to a victim mentality or give in to a dark narrative that ultimately leads to bitterness and offense. I want to tell you, trials are actually an opportunity to go deep in God and grow in steadfastness, endurance, and confidence. I mean, if, if we did a conference for confident in God, we'd probably get a pretty good sign-up until you realize the way you got there. <laughs> but we have to know that. It gives us courage, okay? Trials test us. But here's the thing. They test us not to prove something to God. He knows the end from the beginning. He is not surprised. But rather, trials show us something about ourselves. Tests reveal things. Trials cause us to see our weakness and teach us to rely on God rather than ourselves. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.9, Paul said it this way. We felt we'd received the sentence of death. I know, I'm, I'm really encouraging you as you start the new year. <laughs> yeah, I want to run with that word. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The trial of this feeling like we received the sentence of death was to make them rely on not themselves, but God. A trial is an open invitation from God to go deeper in a life of prayer. When we see our weakness, it draws us more fervently to prayer. Now, I want to share a little from my own experience here. You can turn there if you want, but Psalm 86, uh, verse 1 and 2. Now, when I, when I moved to Kansas City, I was 25 years old, and I was going through a trial. It was called singleness. <laughs> and mine was particularly uh, ugly. <laughs> I was single, I was broke, and I was single. Did I mention that? <laughs> um, but, you know, I had come to the Lord, like I shared, like just, it was pretty dramatic. I mean, I went from just, like, party guy, like, going just lost in the party scene to, like, overnight. I mean, I got filled with the Holy Spirit at Easter dinner. I didn't even know what speaking in tongues was, and next thing I know, I'm Shonda Mahandai. And, you know, like, it was just, like, I, I remember getting prayer in those early years, and it was like somebody with a prophetic gift would be like, oh, yes, Lord, and touches deep wounds of fatherlessness. And I was like, what? And they're like, well, okay. And it was like, it was like people with a prophetic edge could see like, there's a lot, a lot uh, going on in there. 
You know, my, my parents got divorced when I was 12 years old. I, I had all, you know, spirit of rejection and all these things. And, but it was like God had this happy little pause button on my life. It was just like, I just got to show up and be like, God is real. He loves me. He's like giving me just that milk of like the simple gospel. And then I felt God called me to ministry. I go to Kansas City and I start giving myself to prayer. 24 hours a week, I'm like coming to the end of myself. And you know, they describe that prayer room like in the brochure, like it's a greenhouse. Oh, you just go and smell the fragrance. Isn't he beautiful? I got there and I discovered that was true for like a little bit. But then I was like, wait, why is that guy got the, like the butcher apron on? And who turned the heat up in here? And pretty soon I learned it was a flesh fry. Okay, and if you've ever given yourself to prayer, that, the Lord has a way of doing that. And I remember just being so shocked how broken I was. How, how, I mean, I was 25 years old. I never, ever said the words like, it hurt when my dad left. I never went there. I was like, everything happens for a reason. And then I was like, ow, I've never forgiven him for that. Ow, I've been trying to fill that hole with, with a girl. I've been trying to fill that hole with people liking me. I mean, all sorts of things. I hope I'm not getting too real for you. Is that okay? And, but, but I remember being so sh shocked by my weakness. And really, like, it, was, it weighed on me. Like, I was praying with guys that were, like, every Saturday morning, like, coffee and a prayer phone call with their dad. And my dad's like, what the bleep you doing down there? <laughs> like, what do you want to be a priest or something? Uh, and just like feeling shame and feeling like I missed out and just all the like of that weakness and feeling like, man, like if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be this weak. And then I remember reading my Bible and I came to this Psalm by David and it said, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me for I am poor and needy. And, you know, that just kind of felt good. And I was like, yeah, I resonate with that. I am poor and needy, God. Oh. I mean, it was sweet. It was, like, actually really hitting me. There's actually something good about realizing how poor and needy we are. That is not the gospel message that America and the West love, but it's true. All flesh is grass. No one is righteous. No, not one. But when it gets personal... And you realize, yeah, I'm born again, but I'm a hot mess, God. But then the next part wrecked me. Preserve my life, for I am godly. And I said, wait a minute. You can put those two together? David was poor and needy, but godly? And you know, it really hit me. All people compared to God are profoundly weak. But only those who realize they're weak pray. The blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're the only ones who realize, I need him. I've got nothing else. And, and it's a bitter pill to swallow, 
but you get everything. I'm poor and needy, but I'm godly. He likes me. David was a man after God's own heart who was confident in God's love, but he viewed himself as poor and needy. He knew how much he needed God, so he didn't stray. And when you go through a trial and your weakness gets put on display, it is a gift from God because it's going to wean you off confidence in yourself, which is a broken cistern. You, you don't want to go into battle leaning on you. You want to go into battle leaning on Jesus. Psalm 40. I mean, once you see that, it's all over the scripture. David said, as for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. We might be pathetic in the eyes of the world, but if Jesus is thinking about us, I don't care what they think. Okay? Okay, I've got about 45 minutes to an hour more of this message, so just kidding. All right. Now, Peter, who we talked about, he went through his, his trial. Jesus published his trial. Once again, Jesus, what does it mean to be your friend? <laughs> but Peter actually talks about this in his letters, and he compared trials to being the refining of gold through fire. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Sounds familiar. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold though, uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't test something that's not worth something. And you don't, you know, a lot of times we confuse our test with God rejecting or condemning us. It's actually the opposite. Gold is tested to remove impurities because there's something of value. If there's nothing of value, you don't test it. And when we go through a trial, we most easily see our weakness and impurities. They come to the surface. That's part of it, but it's not the whole story. The bigger takeaway is being able to see our faith is genuine in the midst of our weakness. Jesus knew that Peter was weak yet sincere before his trial, but Peter was the one who needed to see it when he made it to the other side. Okay, now one, one more analogy here. There, have you heard of threshing floor? Again, you don't have to take this as your word for 2024. <laughs> but, you know, in uh, the grain, wheat harvest, whatever, threshing was the process by which grain husks um, were beaten in order, with a big instrument, in order to separate the husks and the chaff, the inedible part of the grain, um, and, you know, you'd crush it on a flat surface called a threshing floor. As you can tell that I, I'm not a farmer. Um, 
and then the wheat, and they, then you'd come and you'd winnow it and separate all the chaff from the wheat with a fork. You throw it up in the air and the chaff is blown away and the wheat remains and you eat it and you make pancakes, okay? Now this, this process of threshing and winnowing, so the crushing and the separating, the whole thing is called, anybody know? Yeah, neither do I. I <laughs> sifting the wheat. So sometimes you think of sifting the wheat, you think of sifting flour, like pour it in and ooh, it's nice and fine, make your angel food cake and top it with your strawberries. No, it's actually this kind of brutal process of separating the chaff from the wheat. Now, John the Baptist said that when Jesus returns, he's going to do this. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to clear his threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, and the chaff he burns with unquenchable fire. It's talking about, ultimately, the separation of the righteous from the wicked. Now, what's interesting about this is that during Peter's trial, Jesus told Peter, Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And I imagine Peter going like, you said no, right? <laughs> Jesus? You said no, right? He's not saying anything. But no, Jesus said, but I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, two things here. One, Jesus let Satan sift Peter. But he prayed that for Peter, and ultimately, Peter was going to make it. Jesus was going to let Peter fail. But he was confident that afterward, he'd be able to strengthen his brothers. This is Peter, yeah, like start, like one of the main leaders of that thing that we're in <laughs> called the church. <laughs> Isn't there a, a principle and in Bible interpretation about firsts, you know, that's significant, right? Um, now, here's the thing. The sifting wasn't between the disciples. Like, let's figure out who's Judas and who's true. That happened, okay? But the sifting was of Peter himself. This wasn't about separating Judas, the betrayer, from the true disciples and, you know, the Peters. This was about getting the Judas out of Peter. Okay, and now what would happen one day to the world when Jesus comes back, he is going to come and separate the righteous from the wicked. But it was happening within Peter. And the result was going to be a humbled, restored Peter who is able to bear the weight of God's anointing on his life. We, we're jars of clay, right? That the power may be seen to be from God and not from us. Well, if God's going to entrust something really weighty, his anointing, do you think he would want to test that jar first to see if it could hold it? 
And he was doing this to Peter. And, you know, Peter says in one of his letters, judgment starts in the house of God. But here's what I want you to catch. God's judgment is not his condemnation. God's judgments are redemptive. Peter wasn't being condemned. He was being promoted. He was being qualified for the assignment God had given to him. Okay, I'm going to land the ship, so um, I'm trying to respect the time. Uh, yeah, that will help me not go on and on and on and on and on. Um, the temptation in a time of trial is to walk through it without God's perspective. When you're hurting, bitterness, despair, that victim mentality, it feels good for a minute. And you're going to have plenty of people lining up to stroke that thing. Oh, yeah. Okay? We, if we give in to fear and a dark narrative of our lives, we either end up condemning ourselves and quitting, or we condemn others and get bitter. And sometimes we do both. It's really important when we're in that time of trial not to get consumed with looking out and going, who's responsible for this? Who's really this and that? Who's the wheat? Who's the chaff? Who's the righteous? Who? No, it's a time to be like the psalmist, Psalm 139, who said, search me. Try, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God will take care of it. Now, last thing-ish. I'm saying the same thing over and over again, but that's what you do. When we're being refined, when we're being threshed, we're going through a trial, it's about the impurities coming out. But these things don't define us. God's love defines us. If he didn't love us, we wouldn't be going through it. No one refines dung. Excuse my French. You refine gold. Hebrews 12 says, my son, my son, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. James says that those who remain steadfast are blessed. They will receive the crown of life. Okay, I'm gonna give you three things and then we're gonna pray. So what do you do with this? Three things. Number one, lean in to the divine perspective. I'm sorry to say this, but you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you've got one coming up. <laughs> so this is gonna be practical. 
okay? It might be a little T trial, or it could be a big one. But commit to count it all joy and give thanks for the trial. David said, you know, of his trials, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. The best way to get into a dark narrative is talk about it. This doesn't mean we can't grieve or lament our suffering to God, but we choose to land in gratitude rather than victimhood, and we guard our speech. So lean into that. Ask for it. God, give me your perspective in this trial. Number two, ask for wisdom. It comes right after that verse in James. says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously. God promised to give wisdom to those who ask for it. Wisdom is knowing how to rightly apply the truth in the proper season. And lastly, commit your way to the Lord. Walk in the way you know that God has called you to walk. Sign up for the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who mistreat you. Refuse to take things in your own hands and leave room for God to intervene. Throw yourself into God's hands and patiently wait for him. So as we kind of close today, I want to pray or invite you to respond. I don't know how you, how you guys do it here, but if what I'm saying today, there's a, a part of you that goes, I need God's perspective. Whether it's a big T trial or a little T trial. I want to just ask that the Lord would help us. That we wouldn't be caught in the dark narrative, but that we'd actually hear God's loving voice over us as we're going through this. So however you do that, I don't know, you guys, you want to stand if you want prayer for that. Just if you see someone around you say, I want God to help me. I want to walk out this season not before the eyes of men and their opinions, not before even my own opinions. God, I want your opinion. I want your perspective. Lord, I ask right now, God, thank you that you love us enough Lord, to let our weaknesses come to the surface. Lord, to discipline us. To teach us things that we wouldn't have gotten any other way. Lord, show us how you feel about us in the midst of this. Lord, I ask for grace today where the enemy has tried to seduce us, that we're, we're poor victims, that you don't see that it's someone else's fault, Lord, that would you break us free of that, Lord, that we would be like the one coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on our beloved. trust you, Jesus. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.